0: Hello! Welcome to the first class food FOMO episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. We're also joined by my colleague, Emily Peck. Hello, hello. And we are going to talk about food on planes and how it's basically a way to make people in the economy feel that they're missing out. We are going to talk about a wonderful little piece of financial engineering in the Caribbean by Barbados, who has done some stuff with their bonds and has managed to create $50 million out of thin air to put into their oceans. It's all good. And we are going to talk about Citrix and Twitter and high yield bonds and junk bonds. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Enjoy a moment of Schadenfreude when Bank of America and Credit Suisse and a bunch of big banks lose hundreds of millions of dollars on misbegotten deals.
2: I mean, it's not the worst thing. <laughs> when I was thinking about the story, I did wonder, Does it? has anyone been hurt by this? Oh, the big banks. Hm, that's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a victimless fuck up.
2: It appears to be. Yes. We're talking about. This go-private deal for Citrix, which is, what is it? It's a cloud computing company.
0: Something, something, software, something.
2: Yes, that was going in January. Elliott Brothers and Vista said they're going to take Citrix private.
0: Elliot Associates, we should say. I don't Elliot think there's Associates. A there's a son in London, but I don't think there's a brother. No
2: brother. So, okay, so Elliot Associates and Vista said they're going to take Citrix private in a $16.5 billion deal, and they were going to get that money by basically getting $15 billion of debt from these banks. And then after that, the whole, the Federal Reserve started raising rates, and the debt the deal, the $15 billion debt deal looked kind of bad. And for a while, nothing really happened. And I guess this week, the banks were like, we gotta, we gotta move this debt, we gotta sell this debt. And they they lost a bunch of money. Did I describe that? Okay, do you think you guys
0: let me let me try it again? Because if we do it twice, one of them will make sense. Elliot. And it's friends borrowed 15 billion dollars from the banks in order to pay 16 and a half or 17 billion dollars for citrix so then the banks they're the lenders they have lent out this money but being banks what they like to say is they're in the moving business not the storage business they didn't want to just lend 15 billion dollars to elliott's associates they wanted to convert that debt into bonds and loans and things which they would then sell on the secondary market and ideally just make a profit let's say they lent it to Elliot at seven and a half percent and then they can sell on those loans at a yield of seven percent and they make the profit there and, and they're happy what happened was the interest rates broadly went up interest rates for junk bonds which is what we're talking about here went up a lot mm-hmm. and they wound up selling the debt at like 13 percent or something so obviously when the yield goes up the price goes down they wound up selling it i can't remember what was it like 82 cents on the dollar something like that yeah and so basically yeah that meant that for every dollar that they had lent out to elliot they lost 18 cents and that's not all of it by the way they've only managed to sell off um less than half of the total 15 billion that they've lent so they're still sitting on a whole bunch of unrealized losses on top of approximately 500 million dollars of realized losses yes
2: yes although felix you said that the interest rates on the bonds have gone up but it's my impression that the interest rates on the bonds are the same it's just that the bonds are cheaper now does that matter i really geeked out on this this week so so
0: so, yeah there are two different things right there's the coupon and the yield The, the the coupon is set but the yield changes according to the price. So if the price goes down, then the yield goes up. And most people, when they're talking about the interest rates on a the bond, they, what they're talking about is the yield, not the coupon.
1: Okay.
2: And one other thing I thought was interesting, big picture about this. I mean, big picture, this is just what's happening right now is interest rates are going up. The bond market is kind of going sideways and...
0: well down. Yeah. The, the bond market is, and especially the high yield bond market, the junk bond market is, is in a bear market. It's down like 20%. And the other
2: science. thing is, this was a very, very big deal, and it portends possibly badly for something I hesitate to bring up,
0: but I... Are we going to talk about Elon again? Yeah, it portends
2: <laughs> badly for Elon, Elon's Twitter deal, because it means if Elon Musk is forced to buy Twitter, which maybe could happen, then the banks that are lending him money are going to have to take a big loss on the deal on top of just the drama of this deal already.
0: See, now I'm not sure I buy that. A lot oh. of people have been saying this. In fact, everyone is saying this. I'm, I'm in a minority of one on this. But I don't necessarily think that the bank losses on the bank loan portion of that Twitter deal are going to be that big. It is true that if you look at the roughly 13 billion dollars of debt finance that Elon Musk has put together to help buy Twitter, that is stretching the limits of what Twitter can afford if you look at Twitter's cash flows, right? So this is similar to what Elliot did with Citrix. They're so like, look at all of these cash flows we can use the cash flows to pay the interest on the debt. And they can barely do that and they kind of need the cash flows to increase, and so that's why they're junk bonds because it's you know, a bit dubious whether that's possible. Same kind of thing is true with Twitter. Twitter's cash flows are not really strong enough to support 13 billion dollars of debt. That makes it junk bonds. Junk bond yields are higher than when the banks agreed to do this deal. And so the banks are facing losses. That's the first order thing going on here. But the second order thing going on here is that Citrix, as a company, as a, you know, high flying software as a service company, has decreased in value significantly as a result of the broad decline in those kind of stocks over the past few months. Which means that Citrix now, if you if you wanted to sell Citrix tomorrow, you would get much less than $15 billion for it. The amount of debt which is associated with that company is greater than the entire value of the company. And so if Citrix defaulted on its debt, then the bondholders who would become the new owners would wind up with less than $15 billion because the entire company is not even worth $15 billion. That's not really the case with Twitter, right? Amount that, now we agree that Elon Musk is overpaying at $44 billion. We know that Twitter, like as a standalone company, is worth less than $44 billion. But by the same token, it's probably worth more than $13 billion. So my feeling is that even if Twitter as a company can't afford to make its interest payments on its debt, Elon Musk can. He's like a gazillionaire, right? He's not going to wipe out his entire equity in Twitter just because he can't make a coupon payment on like a, a loan bullet payment or whatever, you know? He And even if he did, even if he just decided to throw all of his toys out of the pram and, and go home and write off his entire $33 billion equity investment, even then... If you basically handed it over to the lenders, the lenders could probably sell Twitter for more than $13 billion, and then they would get their money back. So I don't think that the Twitter debt is as risky as the Citrix debt.
1: Well, do you think some of this analysis is just predicated upon the fact that Elon can be a chaos monkey and you don't really know what's going to happen?
0: Not really, because I'm just saying that like either way, it's fine for the lenders. If he's he's a chaos monkey who just decides that he can write off his entire $33 billion investment, which is possible, then they're kind of going to be okay. But more to the point, if he's a chaos monkey who keeps on throwing billions of extra dollars into Twitter after buying it because, you know, he wants to keep some skin in the game and keep owning the company then that is even better for the banks.
2: But I don't understand. You're saying that the Twitter deal, big picture, is less risky than the Citrix deal.
0: Because Twitter is fundamentally less levered. Because if you think about the amount of debt and the amount of equity, in Citrix, it was $15 billion of debt and $2 billion of equity, right? In Twitter, it's $13 billion of debt and $33 billion of equity. It's a very, very different ratio.
2: But... The issue with the Citrix deal is that the banks were forced to sell the debt at less money than they, well, they wanted to. They, they, Not forced, they, but they, they wanted did. To. They want to get it they, off their books, so they sold at, it. Yeah, at 83.6 cents on the dollar, just looking yes. at my notes. The same thing will likely happen with Twitter. They'll have to sell at some discount on the dollar.
0: Why, why is it a discount on the dollar? That's what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, the reason why citrix debt sold at such a discount is because the investors who are buying that debt consider it to be incredibly risky and therefore they are requiring a 13 percent yield in order to buy the debt because there's so much risk there's so much hair on that ball you know like
2: i thought the reason they wanted the higher rate is because we're in a higher rate environment and comparable bonds are yielding a higher rate. So why would yeah. they pay on the, the same, you know, the same right, for these exactly. bonds so with that, the lower rates? So that, what does that insane. have to deal with to do with Citrix's...
0: Because the question is, what do you mean by comparable, right? Right. Like, like comparable means comparable in terms of risk, comparable in terms of credit risk and comparable in terms of the amount of money you stand to lose if the debtor defaults, right? The reason why... Citrix debt is is yielding so much is because it is comparable to highly, highly risky debt, where if it defaults, you lose a bunch of money, and it has a high probability of default. In Twitter, if it defaults, you don't lose as much money, and it has a lower probability of default. So the yield should be lower.
2: But it will still be The comparables will still be higher now than they were whenever, I don't even remember how long it's been this Twitter saga, but rates have gone up for everything. So there's still going to be some discount.
0: We don't know what the cap is that Elon Musk agreed to in the loan agreement with his banks. There has been a little bit of whisper in the markets that the cap is as high as 11.5%. If it's eleven point five percent, then there is, I think, a decent chance that the banks were able to sell that debt at a yield eleven of eleven point five percent, and thereby not have to take any losses. Now there is a three billion of the thirteen billion. Three billion is unsecured. That's the riskiest bit, and that unsecured three billion tranche might be might might have to price at a discount. So they might take a loss on that. But as for the other, you know, the the bulk of it, the ten billion, I. Th- I, I kind of suspect they're gonna be okay, but I will hazard I, I I will emphasize here that I'm in the minority on this one. Most people think, like you, that like, you know, the entire market is in the toilet and therefore the banks, if they are forced to make this loan, are going to lose lots of money on it.
2: That was really the nerdiest I've ever gotten on this show, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> bigger no, it's picture good. though. Nerd is uh, okay. good. Okay. Nerd is good. But bigger picture, I mean, to go back to where we were at the beginning, like who cares like the banks lost money i guess who cares would be the people who work at citrix who now have to deal with being overlevered right and in a more risky place than they were in december before they were going to go private
0: right but that would be the case whether the banks lost money or not right the amount of leverage on citrix the amount of debt piled on citrix was a given and the banks could have made a massive profit on this deal and they would still have to deal with all of that debt and leverage.
2: Elizabeth, what do you think? Why should we care about this story? Yeah, I'm not sure we should. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, you,
1: the mechanics of it are interesting. It's but the, the fundamental
0: of what markets are about, right? It's, it's about price discovery and it's about the way that prices and price discovery can move very quickly at times like this. And you make a bet that seems like a good bet at the time. And then by the time time comes to actually sell that debt, suddenly that everything has changed. And that's why investment banking is just a really interesting and risky business, because you can make a lot of money in good times. And then suddenly you wake up one morning, we're in a big hiking cycle, we're in a risk off part of the cycle, and you just can't sell that debt to almost anyone. The, the one hilarious footnote that I, sh- I think we should mention here, because it is Quite funny is that one of the biggest buyers of the debt that um, you know was was borrowed to um, to allow Elliott's associates to buy Citrix was Elliott's associates <laughs> good for them as Matt Levine pointed out they they basically borrowed a billion dollars from the banks and then repaid that debt with eight hundred and eighty million or something you're like good deal
2: <laughs> one other point he made that I thought was sort of interesting was like It's not like back in January, we didn't know that rates were going to move higher. Like everyone kind of knew there was this inflation and things were going to change. But investment bankers can't just be like, you know what, rates are going to be higher. So we're just going to like not do this big deal right now and just see how it goes. Like you have to be in the game. There's no opt out.
0: Yeah. And I think it's naive to think that anyone has a great crystal ball about the future direction of interest rates you know january really was before inflation started picking up and we can all say now with the benefit of like hindsight oh yeah of course rates were going to go up after january but like we didn't actually know that at the time no one knows where rates are going to go rates are high right now are they going to go up are they going to go down i have no idea
2: they're going to go up i'm saying it right now
0: And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2%, on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: But let's talk a bit about Barbados, which has done a wonderful little deal where they've taken advantage of rates going up. And this is kind of weird and amazing and glorious. And I love this story. It's called a blue bond. Have you heard of green bonds? This is a blue bond. And normally, you know, Barbados is a borrower, like all sovereigns. And so what it does is it, you know, normally is hurt when rates go up, Um, you know, it needs to pay more to borrow money. But what it did is it put together this incredible deal with the Nature Conservancy and the Inter-American Development Bank, where it bought back $150 million of its debt at 92 cents on the dollar at a discount, and then used all of the savings, they're borrowing much cheaper money from TNC and the IDB, it's using all of that savings over the next 15 years. It's going to be about $50 million. And it's investing, in, it's investing all of that money into the ocean, basically, which is most of Barbados. You know, Barbados is it's one of those countries, a bit like the Seychelles, which did a similar deal a few years ago, which is mostly ocean. And they're saying, well, what we need to do is invest in our oceans, keep them clean, keep them healthy. And we are going to do that with the savings we got, buying back our debt at a discount. And the reason we were able to buy back our debt at a discount is because rates have gone up.
1: Yeah. And this is happening, you know, against the backdrop of Barbados already having a lot of debt, you know, 175 percent of GDP and tourism being down and a broader concern that, you know, climate related stuff is going to drive that in the future.
0: It's going to drive what?
1: It's going to drive tourism and primary sources of revenue for Barbados. So this is aligning incentives to some extent.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true at the margin. If you improve the quality of your oceans, then that will drive tourism revenues. But I think that there is a bigger picture here that it is just a sort of economic necessity globally to look after our oceans. And, you know, the, the what, what the TNC calls the large ocean states, which are often known as small island states, you know, really, they're on the forefront of that. And this is impact investment kind of thing. Like the people buying this 150 billion of blue bonds are... Uh, Impact investors who are willing to lend out money at a risk-free rate or very close to a risk-free rate in order to help out the oceans. Um, there's some credit guarantees from the IDB and the TNC, and those don't, you know, those don't grow on trees. So it's not easily replicable. But it's a. I really like this little piece of financial engineering. I have it's to say, it's nice
2: to see a country getting a good deal on money because I feel like so many stories are like countries getting loaded up with debt and like not and that's being a burden and keeping them from spending money on things that matter and this seems like the exact opposite of of that
0: yeah i mean barbados did just do a massive debt restructuring as well just a couple years ago so like they've already managed to reprofile their debt bring their debt service down and that kind of thing and so this just helps them even more in terms of meaning that they get they have less money that they need to spend on debt service and frees up more money that they can spend on Oceans.
2: Why can't the nature conservancy just give them a bunch of money? Why does it have to be so complicated? I don't ever really understand
0: that part. So the Nature Conservancy has a massive balance sheet. They have like nine billion dollars of assets, something like that. But the overwhelming majority of their assets is land that was donated to them, um, mostly in the United States. So if they were gonna just give money to Barbados, they would have to sell a bunch of the land. And the whole point about the nature conservancy, if you give them land is they'd never sell it, right? They just sit on it and they make sure that it's conserved. So they have the financial wherewithal to be able to guarantee this kind of thing. They have a double A credit rating, but they don't have a bunch of liquidity that is just sloshing around waiting to get spent.
2: That's a very good answer. So do you expect to see more deals like this happening going forward? Or is this sort of like a special one off?
0: So this is actually the third such deal. The first one was the Seychelles. The second one was Belize. And the third one was Barbados. And all of them are very different. And each of these is a huge amount of work and really custom made for that particular country and that particular country's you know fiscal position and so on and so forth in belize for instance had much weaker credit and so it didn't make sense for tnc or the idb or anyone like that to just come in with broad guarantees on the debt so they had to do a bunch of very weird tradey stuff in belize but on the other hand because Belize is a much worse credit, Belize managed to buy back its debt, not at 92 cents on the dollar, but at 55 cents on the dollar. Wow. So it's interesting that there are different structures in different countries, and there it's a lot of work to put these things together. And, you know, this is the kind of work debt capital markets, bankers, in big investment banks, like, know how to do. But maybe that the kind of people who work in nature conservancy organizations are not so familiar with. But TNC is a little bit of an exception here. They really do have a massive balance sheet, a bunch of super sophisticated financial professionals on stuff, and they can help to put these deals together.
2: What are they going to do with the money to fix climate change and the ocean exactly?
0: You know what? I'm such a nerd that I nerded out (laughs) so much on the... On the, on the financial engineering that I forgot to ask what they were going to do with the ocean. Uh, I, I will, I do know that they're putting a plan together which is costing $8.2 million and half of that $4.1 million, is coming from various philanthropists who support TNC, Mackenzie Scott and people like that. There's, they're giving money to TNC to basically really put together a plan to help preserve and improve Barbados's oceans. The the woman at TNC who covers the Eastern Caribbean told me that this is like the, the $8.2 million plan is the like the Toyota Corolla plan. Like if they wanted a Lamborghini plan, it would be a lot more expensive. But this is a lot better than nothing. It kind of gets the job done. And yeah, and then once the plan's together, then they can start using those annual savings on the debt service to 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 implement it.
2: That's interesting because if Barbados primary revenue sources, tourism. It's my understanding that tourism can actually be kind of degrading environmentally. So I wonder how that'll play into this.
0: Well, flying in and out, you know, involves, involves a bunch of carbon emissions, but the fastest growing sector of, you know, tropical tourism is definitely the, the eco-lodges and the eco-tourism and that kind of stuff. It's, it's a good question, and we should probably have someone on who knows about such things, like just how eco are these eco lodges, um, especially in fragile island nations? But as you say, like these fragile island nations really need the tourism revenue. So you minimize the environmental impact while keeping the revenue extant, you know, is the best outcome, really.
2: Good. Well, that's a positive
0: bond story. Yay! How often do we have a positive bond story? You know, how it's often been... do
1: we say nice things about bankers? So. How
0: often do we say nice things about bankers, even if they are bankers who work for non-profits? Yeah. <laughs> but talking of tourism and luxury travel, Elizabeth, what is going on at Singapore Airlines? <laughs>
1: So there was a great story in the FT earlier about the growth of luxury food on high-end airlines, and particularly in uh, business and first class, because despite the fact that business and first only account for a third of airline seats, they account for 70% of all revenue. And so one of the biggest marketing attractions is having ridiculous food in first class. So Singapore Airlines has a special pressurized cabin where they test all of their new food to simulate airplane conditions. And apparently your taste works differently on an airplane. So above 35,000 feet, about a third of your taste buds don't work. So they're trying to engineer food to, to sort of account for that. And, you know, that, that sort of leans into very high-end luxury services. Like on Emirates, you can get unlimited caviar service if you're in premium so, in Singapore Airlines. And, and
0: caviar being one of those like super salty foods that is nice even in the air. Yeah. Famously, tomato juice is lots of umami, and that's what people want in the air as well. So, the taste bud thing is real, although, yeah, the FD article did throw a little bit of cold water on it. The thing that really fascinated me about this article was the way that it looked at it from the airline perspective and basically framed this very swanky food service as a FOMO thing for people in economy.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a great quote from a catering executive where he said, the only real reason to serve food in first class is to make economy passengers feel bad about themselves. Yes. (laughs) Because, and
0: I think, I'm just going to come out and plug my book a little bit because this is one of the themes of my book. But, like, I think this is a pandemic thing, which is that pre-pandemic, business class was business, right? It was business travelers. And they were like, I need to fly from A to B, and my company will put me in business class, and that's where I held. And so that was a very easy way for, for the airlines to sell business class plane tickets. The business class travel has really not recovered from the pandemic plunge in terms of business spending. It has recovered in terms of people spending their own money to fly business class. So at that point, it's not just an automatic thing anymore. What At that point, you really want the richer folks in economy to want to upgrade. Anyone in the economy who's like, it's a plane. It gets me from A to B in exactly the same amount of time. No matter where I sit in the plane, why on earth would I spend an extra $3,000 to sit up front when I can get the same travel service, basically, if I sit in the back? Anyone thinking like that is like bad for airline revenues. They want that person, if they can afford $3,000, to spend the $3,000. And yeah, at that point, you really need to start selling it.
1: Yeah, now it's it's a function of making first class feel like a you know holistic experience, not just again getting from A to B and and even eating great food. So you see all these kind of performance elements that high end airlines are putting into food service. There's a, a thing Finnair does called Sonic Seasonings, where they'll play music while you eat something, and it's it's uh, the audio effect apparently influences how you think about
0: it thank you Finns. finland to the rescue clearly this is what i should do in every restaurant
1: nice crackling fire while you're eating a steak and first
2: i want to thank kitty drake in the ft for explaining why tomato juice tastes good on an airplane because that is one of those things where it's just for some reason you're flying and you're like tomato juice is what i want when you never ever want it anywhere else ever
1: dulled and then the umami tastes are are enhanced for some reason but I you know my go-to cocktail if I get cocktails on planes it's always a bloody mary no now I know exactly why. that's just why. being brainwashed
2: <laughs> and I I loved the insight in the piece about it has nothing to do I mean maybe besides the tomato juice it has little to do with the actual taste of the food or the quality of the food but sort of like the performance the service, the feeling that, like, you're being looked out for. At at one point when she's trying out all this stuff, someone comes to her and says, you know, just relax. And when it's time for you to board, we'll let you know. You don't even have to look at your watch. And that does sound amazing. Take a nap.
0: Bloomberg had this wonderful article about how, like, you can't find a seat in the lounges anymore. And the airlines are all desperately trying to reduce the number of hours that you're allowed to spend (laughs) in the lounge. And, like, you sometimes... The queue to get into the lounge is like 20 minutes long and by the time you're in there you need to turn around and leave and everything is really picked over and crappy and it kind of just doesn't have any luxury vibes at all anymore because I guess the same thing right which is that insofar as business class is now more leisure travelers they're getting to the airport early they're going to to hang out in the lounge they're going to get some free champagne and that just increases the stress on lounges some of which are still closed from the pandemic
2: it is a little confusing actually to think about that bloomberg piece in conjunction with the ft piece it's like am i going to get a first class experience or not (laughs) (laughs) this is a concern i have no i
0: i do think that no, I I do think that for the first time ever, there is a real and noticeable difference between first and business. Like in my mind, it was always like you know, there's that massive jump up from economy to business, which you know, obviously some airlines try to create a sort of in between class. But once you're in business, why on earth would you even bother with first? It's all the same thing. You get the life flat bed, you know, and once you're there and you have the lovely service and whatnot why would you ever want first like what extra fabulousness can you get in first that you can't get in business now i think this is it right you get even more exclusive lounges where you really can get space to have an nap and stuff and you're not surrounded by harry travelers and crowds it, it really is a, a relative positioning thing right you just need to spend enough money to get away from the crowds and it used to be that in business, that was enough money to get away from the crowds. But now, now you have to spend even more to get away from the business class crowds and you have to buy first.
2: You yeah. have to buy first and get your bottomless caviar. Hurry. Yeah,
1: it seems like this is, this is largely applicable to long haul flights, though. I mean, most of the business travel I have to do, there really is no difference between business and first. They're right. literally the same. Section.
0: Yeah, no. This is this is definitely this is why everyone is talking about Air France and Singapore Airlines and Emirates because those are international airlines. Domestic airlines are a totally other kettle of fish. And yeah, I don't even think first class is it's barely a thing domestically yeah, and, in the and U.S.
1: Airlines like Emirates have kind of sold the the service as you know luxury experience in and of itself. Like that that's part of why you travel. So.
0: Right. There are people who literally go to Dubai just so that they can fly first class on Emirates. And then when they're there, they're like, OK, I'm here. Big deal. Like, I guess I'll take a spin around town and see if there's anything to do. And then they just get on a plane and do the same thing backwards because <laughs> the, f- the flight is the point. You know, they've sold it so well. Those people are weird.
2: Yes. That's super weird. If there's a someone like that listening, come, please write in. Let us know. <laughs> I don't. I don't get it. Like flying, even the most luxurious flight, it's still flying is still, ugh.
1: And also tell tell us where. The... I
0: I can tell Emily that you're someone who's never <laughs> flown private. Obviously. I, I have never <laughs> flown <laughs> private either. I I hasten to add.
1: If someone would like to fly us all private to try it out and talk about it, we're, yes, we're please game. write in. <laughs>
0: No, I, I I think there there really is still a sort of weird atavistic holdover from the 1920s or whatever when, you know, flying was actually glamorous or the 1950s, I guess. 1960s, I guess.
1: 60s, yeah. yeah.
0: And there is a certain very, very small subset of people who enjoy it and all power to them.
1: Those people are insane. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you you lose. What did you say, Elizabeth? A third of your taste when you're flying in the air, and you can't yeah. hear as well because of the zhuzhing of the of the air and stuff. I
0: mean, yeah, but you know that that's when you get those incredibly expensive headphones that they give you in first class. Sometimes they, they they think of everything. <laughs> okay. Should we have a numbers round? Yes, let's have a numbers round. I have no idea if I have a number this week, but I'm sure, Emily, that you do.
2: I do. And actually, I have this number because of a story you shared earlier this week. And my number is four hundred and fifty. Okay. Okay. Dollars. Four hundred and fifty dollars. That is the price of a new Yeti Tundra Hall wheeled cooler. <laughs> which can hold 45 beer cans using a two-to-one ice-to-can ice, can, ice to can ratio. And the reason I'm telling you this is because you could spend $450 or you could go to Alaska and comb the beach because Yeti coolers are washing up on shore up in Alaska because a cargo ship spilled 109 containers of them over there. And now people in Alaska are going to the beach and... Getting Yeti coolers for free and then posting videos and such on TikTok of their nice Yeti coolers, which are very expensive way to store your beer. But they do look very nice.
1: Yeah, it's it's what I think of as redneck luxury consumption. Ooh. They're they're sort of a big deal where I grew up. Like people have Yeti merch and they buy all the Yeti things.
2: I mean, it looks—it's a very nice-looking cooler to store your beer and to do your tailgating in. And this is the tailgating season, so I mean, and you could travel first class to Alaska, I guess, and then and then do this. I don't know if there's any left at this point. It was an article in Outside magazine.
0: Elizabeth,
1: my number is twenty-eight thousand uh, dollars, and that's the average cost of a wedding in twenty twenty-one. This is from a New York Times story about—is that up? Uh, yeah. Yeah, what, was, what
0: was it in pre-pandemic times?
1: I think it was around 24. I Googled it. I don't remember what. It was pre-pandemic, but I don't remember what year. But part of what's driving it is now there are companies that will do have a buy now, pay later for your wedding,
2: no, which no, strikes me no. as a
1: horrible idea, no. <laughs> a really good way
0: to how, how long do you want? To, how long do you want to keep on paying for your wedding? But BNPL uh, is
1: how long do you want to be married? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, imagine. Yeah, imagine, Yeah, the the whole idea of continuing to pay for your wedding even after your divorce. That but. BNPL is normally short term, right? How 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 long do you have to pay off your?
1: It didn't say. It seems like their deals are highly customized. They're not as automated as you would think. There's a company that does this called uh, maru M A R O O, and that, they work that, with.
0: Wait, how do people come up with these names? Seriously, oh yeah, I'm getting Marood. <laughs> I'm not getting married. I'm
1: getting Marooed. <laughs> like, is the URL available? That's the, that's the big thing. <laughs>
0: My number is 1.09. Emily, do you know what that one is?
2: One point. No, I don't know. Elizabeth? No.
0: It's the number of dollars that you would need to spend to buy, Emily?
2: A pound? A British pound?
0: pound? A British (laughs) pound. We are plunging down towards parity, people. $1.09 to the pound. This is. The lowest it's been as long as I can remember. Um, And this is all thanks to Liz Truss, the new prime minister. I'm not blaming.
2: <laughs> it's not just Liz <laughs> Truss's fault. I mean,
0: it's mostly that, that country Truss's has
2: thoughts. been messing up for a while.
0: But the big latest <laughs> plunge in the exchange rate is a function of her bizarre tax cut that she just announced that everyone's like. Well, this is going to be a complete disaster, and it's going to force the Bank of England to raise rates even more, and it's going to be even more inflationary. And yeah, everyone's just selling their heck out of the pound. Yeah, I'm going to the UK in December, so with any luck, it'll be relatively cheap. <laughs> yeah,
2: you could travel first class because it's <laughs> going to be so cheap on the exchange rate.
0: Exactly. Take advantage, people. If you if you want to go to Britain in the winter. I know that's top of your list of vacation <laughs> destinations. But if you want to go to, to Britain in the winter, this is it's it's cheaper than it has been in decades.
2: Christmas in London doesn't sound so bad. But
0: it's nice. It's it's grey and wet and kind of chilly and miserable. But yeah, other than that, it's great. <laughs> I think that's it for slate money this week we're going to have a slate plus on the economics of timeshares as requested by jessamine molly other than that thanks for listening thanks for emailing us on slate money at slate.com and we will be back next week with even more slate money